welcome to Addicted to Murder. This is Courtney, licensed professional counselor with over a decade of experience. And this is Trisha, and I am taking a population break for Pocula- a little while. Population? Mm-hmm. That makes me think of the Japanese snack Pocky, which is N- delicious. No, it's not that. that would, I know. That would be easier. Well, maybe not. Um, the drinking of alcoholic beverages. Oh. I've done it before. I'm doing it again. Makes me feel better. Well, good for you. And it is, you know, New Year's Day. Happy New Year's Day. It is New Year's Day as we are recording this. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I actually started this like a week ago. So I did New Year's Eve last night. Probably the first one since I've been of age um, with nothing. No champagne or anything. Oh, me neither. Yeah. But that's not so odd for me. I don't really drink that much. Yeah. Well, I love champagne. Uh, I mean, a dry one. I don't like the sweet Moscato, Osti, yucky stuff. Oh, that's the only kind I like. Ew. Too sweet for me. <laughs> mm. But anyways, um, since it is the new year, mm-hmm. I have a question for you. Do you think that when people make resolutions, they're a help or a hindrance? Uh, coming from like a psychology perspective... Mm. You know, because like sometimes people like go in with all of these like great ideas and then they don't do them and they and then maybe they feel like they let themselves down. Mm, so do you think it's a motivation or do you think that it's just just don't do that? I think it depends on what you set as your goal. Mm-hmm. Right. I think a lot of people go into New Year's resolutions with kind of like big, vague ideas in their mind. Mm-hmm. Like I'm going to get healthy this year. Or, like I'm going to work out more. Um, and so big, vague resolutions like that aren't particularly helpful, Mm -hmm. but if people are setting, you know, if we think of the acronym SMART goals, right, where they're specific, they're measurable, they're attainable. Mm -hmm. Um, what's R? What is R? Relatable. No. Responsible. Oh, that might be realistic. A might be something else. What did you say A was? Attainable. Uh, no, what, that what, might be still attainable. Realistic, what, and then I don't remember. What trackable. Is either. <laughs> <laughs> so don't take my explanation of smart goals very well because I don't remember what they stand for. Mm-hmm. But basically, like specific, measurable, realistic. So like rather than a resolution of like I'm going to get healthy this year, it could be like I want to be able to run a 5K by the end of the year, yeah. or I want to be able to. I don't know, leg press 300 pounds. Yeah. So just, it's got to be like baby steps. So I didn't make any, I don't usually make any, um, but I do have sort of a plan to incorporate a more healthier lifestyle just because again, as we have been saying, as we start started our school programs, it's been hard to juggle everything. So for me, what sort of got left behind was I used to work out mm. and I haven't. And I'm going to slowly incorporate that back in. Mm-hmm. But I have to be mindful of my time because yes. I want to do it after work. But after work, I also have to do my school. So it's like, you know, just taking it one thing at a time and trying to get enough sleep so that I have the energy for everything. Right, right. And so that's part of kind of those like 
realistic goals, mm-hmm. right? Probably going into this week being like, I'm going to work out five days a week. Probably not very realistic. And at by, least not to start with. Yes. And by workout, I mean yoga. Right. So yeah. like mindfulness centering. Sure. So something like, I'm going to try to work out maybe two days a week. Doesn't matter which days. Mm-hmm. Like that would be a much more attainable, realistic goal. Yeah. I'm hoping that there's not a ton of homework, but I'm sure there will be. I don't know. I don't know based on my first term if that's like the norm what I did or if those were easy classes or hard classes. I don't know. So I don't know what to expect with this next term. And they won't post the stuff early because like it's like uh-huh. winter break. So I'm like, I, I want to get a jump on it, but they won't post it. So I don't know what to do. I understand. It is frustrating that you can't get the syllabus ahead of time. Right. Just I am in the same boat. Start the reading. Just let me start the reading. Right. It's annoying. But anyways, that's life. It is life. Well, thanks for that clarification on whether or not New Year's resolutions are good or bad. And now why don't you tell us a little bit about the new case that you chose for us. Okay. Yeah. So we do, we are starting someone new today. Um, we are starting on Earl Nelson, a.k.a. the Gorilla Man, um, also known as the Dark Strangler, but most people know him as the Gorilla Man. Um, and I found him on a whim when I saw a book with an interesting title, um, which I picked up. So the, the book that we're using for most of this is it's called Bestial, The Savage Trail of a True American Monster by Harold Schechter. Um, and I never heard of this guy before, but he's actually pretty interesting. Nice. Looks like we also, you know, okay. I got to tell you how I discovered Murderpedia. Um, (laughs) it's actually (laughs) when I used to work in insurance and we had a provider apply to be on the panel and, um, in the research that we do in credentialing, they came up on Murderpedia and it's like, what is Murderpedia? And then now I use it all the time yep, for it's research. Wikipedia right. of murderers. Yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> it is what it sounds like, but mm-hmm. it is definitely a weird sounding name or for a website or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Anyways. Um, well, I'm going to just dive in. Now, this is one that Courtney um, wrote. So, it, again, sometimes our episodes sound a little different because we have different voices. We do. Mm-hmm. In our writing. Earl Leonard Farrell was born in San Francisco, California on May 12, 1897. So we're going back a bit. His mother, Frances Nelson, died of syphilis when Earl was just nine months old. And his father, James Farrell, died of the same illness later or less than a year later. So, Courtney, I looked up some statistics on syphilis, and back then, I guess about 10% of the population would contract it within their lives, and it wasn't about till 1910 that a cure was found. So, just... And a cure is, like, penicillin. Basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, But just the fact that both his parents had it and died of it, it's like, it's an awful way to die. It is. (laughs) If you read about it. Um, I'm really glad that they found a cure, although it is making a comeback Mm. in the STI world unfortunately get tested people yeah 
Earl was adopted by his grandmother, Jenny Nelson, at the age of two and was raised along with his aunt and uncle as though they were siblings. When he was four, Earl almost died after contracting diphtheria, which is a bacterial respiratory infection that was um, pretty rampant among children around the turn of the century. But he did recover after several months. So Earl then displayed very bizarre behavior from a young age. As a child, he was frequently observed talking to people who were not there. His mood was erratic, changing between hyperactive and depressed when he would be self or he would be or sorry, when he was self-loathing. Let me say that again. <clears throat> His mood was erratic, changing between hyperactive and depressed when he would be self-loathing and morbid. Sometimes he would leave for school dressed in new clean clothes, but return from school in a completely different outfit, often dirty rags, as though he had quote traded with a homeless vagrant. One of his most bizarre habits was to take any meal served and douse it with excessive amounts of olive oil, which he would then eat with his hands or slip it, slurp it off his plate like an animal. He had a temper that could be very violent, and he was expelled from his primary school at age seven because of his behavior. Courtney, what do you think is occurring? Do you think he may have suffered brain damage from diphtheria or something else? So I think there are probably a few things that could be contributing to Earl's behaviors. I did some research about babies who are born with syphilis, um, as it can be passed from mother to baby. Um, and we don't know for sure when Earl's mother contracted the disease, but it's possible it was before or while she was pregnant. Um, and so when left untreated, babies born with syphilis can have several different birth defects, including shortened bones and stature, learning difficulties, and mood or behavioral disruptions as they get older. Um, so I definitely think it's possible that Earl was born with the infection but was not treated for it as a child. He may have been like asymptomatic at birth. Mm -hmm. um, so then the impact of being born with syphilis could have... Um, been worsened when he got the diphtheria, um, potentially caused more more damage since diphtheria comes with pretty high fevers and things like mm -hmm. that, which can damage your brain. Um, and then also just based on the description of his behaviors, if I were to say assess Earl now as a child, um, I would definitely consider childhood onset bipolar disorder with psychotic features or... Um, even potentially child-onset schizophrenia. It is rare for those mental illnesses to emerge quite that young, but it does happen sometimes. So things like schizophrenia and bipolar are things that can be diagnosed prior to the age of 18, unlike personality disorders. Yes. Okay. His grandmother, Jenny, was a strict Pentecostal Christian, and religious teachings were, were very much enforced in the home. So she was described as caring but distant and could be highly critical of her children when they did not live up to her moral expectations. While her efforts to shape young Earl into a well-behaved, God-fearing young man mostly failed, she was able to instill a respect and interest for the Bible. From a young age, Earl was obsessed with the Bible and would compulsively quote Bible verses throughout his life. When he was about 10 years old, Earl was in a significant accident. He was hanging around with some other boys and showing off riding his bike. He dared himself to ride fast and jump over the tracks where a trolley was coming. Well, he miscalculated it and ended up being hit by the trolley and thrown off his bike. Earl was knocked unconscious and remained in a coma for six days before the swelling, went around, his, uh, the swelling around his brain went down and he regained consciousness. 
His aunt Lillian reported that he was never quite the same after this head injury, and his erratic behaviors and violence became more pronounced, and he struggled with focus and memory. He was already a bit of a loner without many friends, but after his injury, his ability to socialize appropriately with others worsened. Lillian described times when she would have a friend over and they would be having tea or hiking in the living room and Earl talking, not hiking. (laughs) That would be hard. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, Earl would come into the room walking on his hands, saying nothing and then leaving again. So on a personal note, I do have a friend who suffered a car accident and was in a coma for a long time. I want to say like weeks to months before she regained consciousness. And I only met her after the accident and you know what she was like then but her sisters told me that she had changed from before so like her head injury had changed her personality kind of and some of the things she that her abilities um so you know head injuries are fascinating and we definitely see a trend between them and change in behavior what are your thoughts on that yeah so head injuries especially if there's a tbi or traumatic brain injury can have a pretty devastating effect on a person And the type of impact depends on where the injury to the brain occurs, with trauma to the frontal lobes being um, the place that has the most impact on personality and behavior, because that part of the brain is responsible for logical thinking, decision-making, and impulse control, for example. So often what is seen after a head injury of this type is difficulty managing emotional impulses, and then anger is kind of the most visible of kind of those deficits there. Mm -hmm. And we have seen this before with other killers who've had head injuries, um, including Richard Ramirez, Dennis Rader, and John Wayne Gacy all suffered um, head injuries during their childhood. And now with Earl, who was already struggling with emotional and behavioral problems before the head injury, it's very likely that his problems were worsened by the trauma. Jenny died when Earl was 14, and he was taken in by his Aunt Lillian and her husband. He had already quit school completely and worked a number of menial short-term jobs. Earl struggled to keep a job longer than a month or two, as he would get distracted and leave tasks unfinished, had a poor work ethic, and sometimes would just walk off the job site and never return again. He would get lost in daydreams for hours at a time. Lillian had this to say about him. Quote, he was just like a child, and we considered him like a child. And of course, we would never go too far with him because there was always the fear of him. So three caregivers dying while he was so young. Let's talk about that. Losing three caregivers by age 14 is absolutely a significant thing. Earl was still a baby when he lost his parents, so he would not have any conscious memory of them or their deaths. Still, he would have been aware that not having parents made him different from other children, um, increasing his feelings of being kind of othered. And additionally, when parents or caregivers die, children also become or often become very fixated and fearful of death, their own and those of others they care about, which might explain what was described as his, like, quote, morbid outlook when he was a child. And then in addition, the stress from loss and grief can also aggravate existing mental illness. So Earl was especially vulnerable to the impacts of losing his grandmother when she passed. At the tender age of 15, Earl began drinking heavily and frequented local brothels. He had a, quote, voracious sexual appetite and engaged in frequent masturbation when he was not with sex workers. 
During his drinking binges, Earl would disappear for days at a time and come home battered and bruised, as if he had been in several fights. By this time, Earl had grown into a stocky and very strong young man. He had very large hands and sometimes would just go around lifting heavy objects. In the spring of 1915, Earl, now 18, was off on another of his binges, this time wandering around Northern California for a few weeks. Needing food and money, Earl broke into a cabin that he thought was abandoned to steal what he could find. He was surprised as he was leaving when the cabin's owner returned, and he ran into the woods. However, he was easily found and and arrested in possession of the stolen items. He was sentenced to two years in San Quentin. His time in prison, uh, prison was uneventful, and he was released after serving that time. Well, as far as we know, this is the beginning of his criminal career. I wonder if because he was in, you know, so many fights in his youth, he was able to get through prison pretty much unscathed. You know, the others must have left him alone if it was an uneventful time. Yeah. So um, petty theft and shoplifting were actually pretty common behaviors for Earl when he was younger. Um, Probably a a byproduct of, you know, his lack of impulse control. Um, And he also most likely seemed to steal more out of like necessity. Like when he didn't have any money to meet his basic needs, he would just take Mm -hmm. what he needed or take what he wanted. Um, And yes, I do imagine that he was able to defend himself when needed while in prison. And his bizarre behaviors likely kept others at a distance. That's true. He might have just been like, there's that, they'd be like, there's that freaky dude. He's talking to the walls again. Talking to the walls again. World War I was in full swing over in Europe, and the U.S. was becoming more involved. In an act of patriotism and the hope of serving, quote, over there, Earl, using his birth name Earl Farrell, joined the army. This was a short-lived experiment, and before com- uh, completing training, he got bored one night when he was assigned to guard duty and just walked away, going AWOL. He made his way to Utah, Utah, where he stayed for a while before deciding he was not cut out to be a Mormon, and then joined the Navy. He was stationed in San Francisco as a cook, but once again found the chores and duties too tedious and deserted that post after just one month. He tried two more times over the next couple months to join the military, but it just didn't stick. His last attempt was to rejoin the Navy. By this time, he refused to work and spent spent all of his time reading the Bible and pros... What's that word? Proselytizing? Uh, About the apocalypse. He was committed to the Napa State Mental Hospital. While there, he was treated for two different sexually transmitted diseases and presumably a mental health condition, although it was not listed in the source material. He was at the hospital for a little over a year and managed to escape three times. The first two times, staff found him and brought him back, but the third time they just let him go. He was discharged from the Navy and the hospital, with his records indicating he had, quote, improved and was not violent, homicidal, or destructive. Courtney, I'm thinking ASPD, the inability to hold a job or stay committed to the military and all that. What are your thoughts on the diagnosis? Something psychotic, some of the erratic behaviors remind me of schizophrenia, which you said earlier as well. Yes, so I agree that Earl does meet criteria for antisocial personality disorder based on his behaviors. Um, He does not really seem to have any kind of respect for the rights of others and continues to break the law and is very impulsive. I also think that Earl may have had schizoaffective disorder, which is a psychotic disorder where a person exhibits both psychosis and mood disruption at the same time. Um, But the psychotic symptoms are still present even when the mood disorder is not. 
So kind of earlier I mentioned both bipolar disorder, which is a mood disorder, mm-hmm. and schizophrenia, which is a psychotic disorder. Um, and so I'm wondering as he got older if um, it became more clear that it was kind of this very specific psychotic disorder um, that includes both. So, you know, Earl displayed ongoing psychotic symptoms, including hallucinations, delusions, and disorganized thinking. And he also displayed bipolar symptoms, including episodes of depression, where he would be sad, self-loathing, and have low motivation, and mania, where he had high energy, impulsiveness, was risk-taking, had some hypersexuality going on, and could be more aggressive. And then, of course, there are the ongoing impacts of his head injury and potential illnesses. Well, Earl returned to his Aunt Lillian's home after leaving the hospital, and she took him in and helped him get a job as a janitor at the local medical hospital. While while working there, Earl met a maid from housekeeping department named Mary Martin. Mary was shy and introverted and reminded Earl of his grandmother, both in looks and age, as Mary was 58 when they met and Earl was 22. But he was smitten with her and soon proposed marriage. Mary liked him, and there weren't exactly throngs of men beating down her door, you know, to marry a 58-year-old woman. So she said yes, with the condition that Earl converts to Catholicism. Do you think he was looking for a mother-slash-grandmother figure in his bride due to all the loss he suffered as a child? Absolutely, yes. I think that Earl was looking for a mother figure when he met Mary. He was somebody who really did need to be taken care of, no matter how much he pushed back against his grandmother's rules and discipline as a kid. You know, in attachment and relationship theory, it is suggested that heterosexual men seek partners that remind them of their mothers and vice versa. So he very well be, could have been looking for someone that reminded him of his grandma. Well, once they were married, Mary discovered that her new husband was no ordinary man. Earl still had some of the same bizarre habits from his childhood. He often refused to bathe, had horrible table manners, and still had a penchant for living, uh, leaving the house looking presentable and returning looking like a vagrant circus clown. I wonder what he was getting up to. I don't know, right? <laughs> he also liked to make his own clothes out of Mary's dresses, although he didn't actually know how to sew. He also had an insatiable sex drive, requiring sexual gratification at least once per day. When Mary was not interested or unable to satisfy him, he would masturbate in front of her, which was an affront to her Catholic sensibilities. Earl soon began going to other sources to supplement his sexual needs. His love and affection for Mary also transformed into possessive jealousy. He would become enraged when Mary talked to any other man, including her own brother, and we'd become violent. He'd break objects, he'd punch walls, you know, at times. So he does sound like he has the mentality of a child. Yeah, that's probably pretty accurate. I mean, between his untreated mental illnesses, his head trauma, and traumatic losses of caregivers at a young age, I would not be surprised if Earl's cognitive and emotional development were pretty stunted. Yeah. I mean, even his, what was it, his aunt or his grandma that was saying that he's a child? His, yeah, his aunt. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. During the first year of his marriage, Earl's mental health continued to deteriorate, which is pretty fucking sad because it was already pretty bad. Mm-hmm. He suffered from intense migraines, and during one, he fell off a ladder and suffered another head injury. He was knocked unconscious and hospitalized for two days before he left against medical advice. Following the second head injury, Earl began experiencing auditory and visual hallucinations and religious delusions and was more paranoid and violent. Mary began to fear that her husband would one day hurt her in one of his violent rages. When he wanted to move from their home, Mary refused to go with him, and he left without her. 
So basically, he was kicked out by Mary, and Earl discovered a new way to release his anger. On May 19, 1921, Earl approached the home of a man named Charles Summers. Mr. Summers was not, his home, was not at home, but his 24-year-old son, Charles Jr., and 12-year-old daughter, Mary Summers, were at home. Earl pretended to be a plumber who was there to fix a gas leak. Charles Jr. let him in and directed him down to the basement where the pipes were located. Also located in the basement was Mary. Earl immediately attacked Mary and attempted to strangle her with his bare hands. Mary was a fighter, and she fought and screamed enough to alert her brother upstairs, who came to her aid. Earl pushed Charles uh, Jr. on going up the steps and managed to get out the front door before Jr. caught up. They fought in the street until Earl punched Jr. in the head hard enough to knock him down, and Earl ran away. Both Charles Jr. and Mary were able to clearly describe Earl to the police, and he was captured only two hours after the attack. While in jail that night, Earl pulled out all of his eyebrows with his fingernails and was observed, quote, howling about there being faces in the wall. He was transferred to the local city hospital the next morning. Courtney? You know, like many of our serial killers that we've talked about, Earl found a proxy to release his anger onto when he was not able to lash out at the actual person he was upset at. I imagine he was filled with intense hurt and rage when his wife rejected him and felt the need to release that rage in some way. Unfortunately, Mary Summers and Charles Jr. were the victims that he chose. And then, as is common, high intensity of emotion also can cause an increase in his psychotic symptoms. What's it called, again, when people pull out hair like that? Trichotillomania. Trichotillomania. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's compulsive hair pulling. Of any kind of body hair. Any kind of body hair, yeah. Um, But usually, it's not like a one-time thing. Mm -hmm. It's like ongoing, chronic, and compulsive. Is it an anxiety-induced thing? Mm -hmm. Okay. Once informed of her husband's arrest, Mary Martin went to see him at the hospital. He was being held in a straitjacket and tied to the hospital bed, babbling about faces watching him. Mary, who still cared for Earl, had him involuntarily committed to the psychiatric ward. After one month, there was a hearing about Earl's competence to stand trial. The psychiatrist who had assessed him said that Earl was, quote, restless, violent, dangerous, excited, and depressed, and, quote, so far disordered in his mind to endanger health and person. The judge agreed that Earl was too dangerous to be, to be released, and he was sent back to Napa State Mental Hospital. Upon his admission at Napa State, Earl was diagnosed as a, quote, constitutional psychopath with outbreaks of psychosis and bouts of nomadic dementia. Due to his history of escape, Earl was not allowed off the ward without supervision and restraints. Good gosh. He tried to elope twice in his first two weeks. Not by marriage, but that means escaping in fancy speak. But never made it outside the building. Earl was given the medication Salverson, which was used to treat syphilis. And this seemed to help for a little while. While he continued to have religious obsessions and delusions, Earl was able to engage in basic tasks and communicate with people, having a relatively smooth first year in the hospital. However, about 18 months into his commitment, Earl started to become agitated, restless, and melancholy. He started refusing to take his medication medication, and threatened to run away. Earl successfully escaped from the hospital on November 2, 1923, and went directly to his Aunt Lillian's home. She described his arrival in the middle of the night. Quote, he had his face right against the glass with a horrible, crazy hat on, and I let out one terrible scream because he looked so awfully insane. His eyes were just black, glaring at me, and the children rushed up to me, and of course I opened the door because he was my own flesh and kin, and I loved him. 
Courtney, I assume nomadic dementia means he wanders and gets lost. What do you think of these diagnoses? So nomadic dementia is no longer a diagnosis that's used, um, but the closest thing in the DSM-5 is what's called a dissociative fugue. And this describes a period where a person in a dissociative state wanders off or travels, having no recollection of who they really are while they're in the fugue state, and then have no memory of their travels once they kind of wake up out of the state. This is very rare, um, and it's most often triggered by trauma. It's not clear to me that fugue states were what Earl was experiencing, um, or whether his wandering is better attributed to maybe some like impulsivity and acting on like manic or psychotic ideas. As for the other diagnoses of psychopathy with bouts of psychosis, I think his doctors are describing similar things to my idea of um, antisocial personality disorder and schizoaffective disorder, just with different lingo and understanding of the time period. Well, scared for the safety of her children, Lillian gave Earl a pair of her husband's clothes to wear and convinced him that he needed to run away. And as soon as he was gone, she called the hospital to tell them that he had been there. Earl remained on the run for two days before he was found wandering around San Francisco and was taken back to the hospital. He remained at Napa State for an additional 16 months without major incidents. In May May of 1925, Earl was discharged from the hospital and deemed improved. Quote, (laughs) during the final months of his hospitalization, Earl had somehow convinced his poor wife Mary to take him back in, and he was released into her care. However, Earl's restlessness and nomadic dementia set in, and he left, heading north after just a few weeks. Do you think that they... uh, that he really showed improvement, or do you think the hospital just wanted to get rid of him? I think probably a little bit of both. My guess would be is that when he had that kind of big escalation in behavior and escaped, is that probably he was in a manic episode Mm -hmm. that had emerged. Um, And then as that manic episode resided, um, he probably did look better for a while. Mm -hmm. And then they were probably kind of like, well, this is as good as you're going to get. Um, well, okay. Well, that's where we're going to stop for the day. I was starting to think about the whole, um, you know, when, uh, so in, in my forensic, um, psychology class, we Mm -hmm. learned a lot about NGRI, not guilty by reason of insanity play. Mm -hmm. And it is back then it might've been different nowadays. If you, you know, are found not guilty by reason of insanity, and you are for- forcefully committed by the state into a mental hospital to serve any, well, you're not guilty, so there's not a sentence. But they they keep you there until you can prove as the person that you're able to go, mm-hmm. um, which apparently can be really hard. Sometimes people end up staying in the, a mental hospital longer than if they would have taken a, a guilty plea and went to prison. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just thinking maybe back then it wasn't the same because – this guy sounds like he needed to stay there for a lot longer to me. And it would have been hard for him to prove that he was able to go, but it was the twenties. So. Right. And, you know, also thinking it was sort of like the, the first time that he was there where on the third um, escape, Mm -hmm. they just decided not to go look for him. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyways. So we'll pick up uh, next week, probably just a two parter. Yeah, I think we'll be done after next week. Yeah. All right, everyone, stay safe. 
and we'll see you next Tuesday. Bye.